Well, let us continue in worship this morning by opening God's Word to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts, chapter 9. Beginning in verse 32. Acts 9, verse 32, and we will read through the end of the chapter. Now please listen to the reading of God's word. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. As far as the reading of God's word this week, one of, the, one of our elders sent the rest of the elders a quote from a man who is known as the Prince of the Puritans, John Owen. As Owen contemplated his own impending death, which came very soon after he wrote these words, he did something quite powerful. He had a conversation, a type of dialogue, but with his own dying flesh with his own decaying body. And this is what he said to his body as his body prepared to die. Quote, Die then, you frail and sinful flesh. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. I give you up to the righteous judgment of the Holy One. Yet at the same time, I give you into the hand of the great refiner, who will hide you in your grave. And by this, he will purify you from all your corruption and disposition to evil. Otherwise, this will not happen. For after a long and sincere endeavor to kill all your sins, I find you will never be absolutely perfect without this reduction to dust. You will no longer be a residence for the smallest remainder of sin into eternity. You will no longer clog my soul in its pursuit of God. Therefore, Rest in hope, for in the appointed season, God will have a desire for the work of his hands and will call out to you, and you will answer him out of the dust. 
then, by an act of his almighty power, he will not only restore you to your pristine glory, like that of the first creation when you were the pure workmanship of his hands, but he will enrich and adorn you with inconceivable privileges and advantages. So, do not be afraid. Put off all reluctance and go into the dust. Rest in hope, for you will stand again at the end of the days. End quote. John Owen died soon after he spoke those words. His body was buried and he became dust indeed. So as we consider our passage this morning, I ask this initial question. Where was his miracle? Where was his miracle? Did he not read the account of Lazarus being raised, being brought out of the tomb? Did he not read the account of Jairus' daughter being brought back to life? Or did John Owen miss Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43 in his daily readings? Why didn't he pray his illness away? Why didn't he ask for a miracle that would have spared his life? After all, he was only 67 years old. Wasn't he a man of faith? Didn't he love the Lord Jesus? Didn't he write thousands of pages of meditation and study upon the glory of Christ, the work of the Spirit, and the nature of faith? Where was his faith? Isn't he known for his great knowledge of biblical truth? In my study, I have a set of his works, 16 volumes, 16 volumes of faith-filled writings, 16. The man knew his God. The man knew his Savior. The man knew the power of the Spirit. Yet, when his time came to die, he did not ask for a miracle. He spoke to his flesh, his dying flesh, with faith and said, Go into the dust. Fear not. Listen to me, my brothers and sisters. As we consider our passage this morning, you must know, you must know that it is not those who are constantly seeking for a miracle the ones who have a faith that overcomes the world. No, rather, it is those who, in the face of death itself, can say to their bodies, go to the dust, who have a faith that overcomes the world. A true faith that transcends the miraculous. A faith in that which is unseen. Ironically, I will use this passage to show you how this is so. In fact, I believe the passage itself will demonstrate this to us, as I hope to prove. But first, let me give you the theological framework. If you're following on the notes, this is the point number one, the theological framework. Now let's begin by defining a miracle, the definition of a miracle. What is a miracle? Well, a miracle is not to be confused with God's work of providence by which he sustains all creation and he's moving all of creation to its intended end. If God's providential care of the universe was a miracle, then everything would be a miracle, right? Because he's always sustaining the world. But not everything is a miracle. This is not the case. So for our purposes, let us work with this definition of a miracle, which I included in your notes from Sam Waldron. He defined the concept in a strict sense as, quote, a redemptive, revelatory, extraordinary, external, astonishing manifestation of the power of God. Now, that definition includes several elements. 
Let, let us consider each one. A miracle has to be, first of all, redemptive. What does that mean? It means that it must somehow be connected to the saving purposes of God in Christ, not detached from it. Second, a miracle is revelatory, meaning it yields further insight as to the character and the power of God and is usually done by a person holding an official office, either prophetic or apostolic. Third, a miracle is extraordinary, meaning it cannot be similar to normal occurrences in the world. It is out of the ordinary. Fourth, a miracle is external, meaning it is visible and experienced by the senses in the physical world. A miracle is supernatural intervention within the natural realm. And fifth, number five, a miracle is astonishing, meaning it always leads to the people's amazement and wonder. It yields a strong reaction. Now, that's the definition. With that in mind, let us consider the grounds for miracle. The grounds for miracles. Apostleship. Apostleship. Here I want to emphasize the redemptive and revelatory aspects of a miracle. The worker, the, the miracle workers, miracle workers were confined to the biblical times because their purpose was to attest to the fact that the revelation they were speaking was indeed from God. In the Old Testament, prophets, prophets were gifted with miraculous power to confirm that their message came from the Lord, such as, for example, Moses. Likewise, in the New Testament, the apostles were the ones with that gift and that authority. Hence, for example, the words of Paul to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. The signs of a true apostle. True apostleship was confirmed by the power to perform miracles. That's why I'm not an apostle. And I don't believe we have apostles anymore. I believe Sam Waldron again hit the bottom line when he said, and I quote, in the Bible, miracles strictly defined definitely occurred in conjunction with those who are the organs of new and direct revelation. Why? Because miracles were meant, listen to this, don't miss this, miracles were meant to point to a reality greater than themselves. Miracles were never end in themselves, and I will develop that further in just a moment. Number two, let's look at the historical setting briefly. What is going on in our passage? Luke, the writer of Acts, under the inspiration of the Spirit, saw fit to draw our attention away from Saul for a moment and direct our eyes to Peter. And this is Peter's itinerant ministry. That's the context. He went here and there, the Bible says. Peter, of course, has been quite central to the overall narrative of Acts and, I, and will continue to do so and to be so until the end of chapter 12. And what did Peter do during this time? Well, the Bible tells us he was busy making apostolic rounds, visiting the saints in different regions. He spent much time teaching and preaching and, of course, performing miracles. And in our account, we are given two of these miracles, one in a town called Lydda and the other one in Joppa. Now, both of these towns were uh, just northwest of Jerusalem, very close to the coast by the Mediterranean Sea very easily accessible to the apostles. Now, when Peter arrived, 
of these respective towns, a need arises, the Bible says, a need for the miraculous. So let's look at the specific miracles. Number three, the specific miracles. First, the need for a miracle. The need for a miracle. What was the need? Decay and death. Decay. Decay in the case of the man named Aeneas and death in the case of Dorcas. We are not given much background for either of these uh, people other than both were saints, which means not that they were sinless, but that they were Christians. They were followers of the Lord Jesus. But we know essentially nothing about Aeneas other than his affliction. We are given a bit more about Dorcas. She was a believer, a disciple of Jesus, whose name meant female gazelle. Female gazelle. Both in Aramaic, which is a Hebrew dialect, Tabitha, and Greek also, Dorcas. Moreover, she was known for her kindness, the Bible says, and her generosity, which she expressed primarily by making tunics and garments, garments for widows. I remember growing up in, in Chile, the, there, was a, there used to be a, a ministry called Dorcas. I don't know if you ever had anything like that in the U.S. No? Oh, I'm, I'm completely alone. <laughs> it was a ministry of the Pentecostal church uh, in, in Chile, but there was also a Baptist side. It was a group of ladies that got together. It was called the Feminine Union, and my mom was a part of that as well, and I remember that they based the, their ministry on Dorcas, the example of this lady, and their, their number one purpose was to make items of clothing for widows. These, these ladies dressed a certain way, and they were very zealous for, for their work. It was actually quite special to witness them in action. The point being that, according to Luke's account, Dorcas had a great impact upon others because of her charity, her kindness, so much so that the news of her death brought deep lamentation to the widows whom she had served. And if you think about it, both Aeneas and Dorcas, both of their circumstances leave you with a sense of impossibility and finality, Dorcas even more so. Consider this an eight-year-long paralysis, and then death. Humanly speaking, hopeless. Hence the word miracle. Miracle. And we know what happened. A supernatural reversal occurred. So let's consider the quality of the miracles. The quality of the miracles. Two words. Immediate and undeniable. Immediate and undeniable. By immediate, I mean there was no testing trial to see if the miracles were legitimate. None of that. It happened immediately for everyone to see. And by undeniable, I mean that there was no question as to what had happened. Eight years of paralysis were instantly gone and death was reversed. This, by the way, is what you won't find in modern day attempts at miracles. If you have ever seen what takes place in the so-called miracle healing crusades, you're always left thinking, what was that? What did that person have? What was the condition and where they healed? You never know. You're always wondering what was going on. These so-called healings always seem to be questionable at best in our modern day. Not so the miracles performed by the apostles. 
It was clear. It was undeniable. Once they were done, there was no question as to what had happened. The restoration was visible, undeniable, and irrefutable, something the so-called modern-day apostles should keep in mind. Now, why were these miracles so undeniable and so perfectly done? Well, this leads us to our next point, the power of the miracles. The power of the miracles. Jesus. The power of the miracles. Jesus. Notice that in both instances, the apostle Peter sees himself as only the mouthpiece, uh, the mouthpiece as the agent through whom the power went forth. In the case of Aeneas, Peter actually says, Jesus Christ, not me, Jesus Christ heals you. Well, in the case of Dorcas, he prays and then he was healed. But the power is one and the same. It is the Lord. Now, did this require faith on the part of Peter to do perform this miracle? I would say, yes, of course it did. Faith in the Lord. But the point of Luke's writing here is to emphasize not so much the amount of faith that Peter exercised, but rather the object upon which his faith rested, namely the Lord Jesus. So here's another question. How did Peter know that this was the Lord's will for Aeneas and Dorcas? It is almost as if he took healing for granted, especially with Aeneas. He immediately tells him, Jesus Christ heals you. Not even he might heal you or he will heal you, but he does, he will right now. Why the immediacy? Why the certainty? Because such were the times in which they lived. Miracles were a normal occurrence because the kingdom of God had come upon them. And this kingdom was announced through the preaching of the apostles. But in order to confirm this, power was unleashed in very unusual and unique ways. It does seem as though the miraculous did begin to wane as the apostolic ministry drew to a close. For instance, here's an example. Timothy, you will remember the, the story of Timothy, developed a stomach problem and frequent ailments, the Bible says. Serious enough for Paul to mention it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. Now, we don't know what the cause of those stomach problems and ailments were, probably the pressures brought about on him by the churches. What is interesting, though, is that Paul did not tell Timothy, go get yourself a miracle. Isn't that interesting? The great apostle Paul did not tell Timothy, where's your faith, Timothy? How come you're dealing with this? Go get yourself a miracle, or I will pray immediately for your healing. Rather, this is what Paul told him, to use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Use a little wine. Why do I mention this? I do because I want to make sure we understand that just because miracles were prevalent during the early days of the church, it doesn't mean that this was always the norm. I doubt, I highly doubt that everyone, every single person in the early church was always in perfect health and never got sick. I doubt that. Timothy certainly got sick and apparently he had to live with his condition. He didn't get his miracle. What does that tell us? It tells us that miracles in the strict sense, remember the definition, in the strict sense, 
they had a very specific purpose and a very specific design, which is our next consideration, the outcome of the miracles. What happened every time there was a miracle? Faith. Faith. Many believed in the Lord. So if you want to do a miracle and it's not connected to faith, to saving faith, then what's the point? That's what we're saying by redemptive and revelatory. This brings up the fact that miracles were also known as signs. Signs. Why signs? Now, we are beginning to enter the meat of it all. Both Jesus during his earthly ministry and the apostles were attested, confirmed by signs and wonders, such as Aeneas' healing and Dorcas' resuscitation. And these are called signs. Why? Just like signs on the road are there to point you in the right direction to, to your final destination, miracles, too, were meant to lead people to something greater, to a final destination. Physical healings were meant to point to a greater healing, which naturally leads us to point number four, the central question. The central question. By the central question, I mean the question that stands behind this account, a question that is not explicitly written for us, but that it is nonetheless present. And the central question that stands in the back of all discussions regarding miracles is found in Luke chapter 5. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. You will remember the story. You are familiar with the story. This is the story of what happened between the Pharisees and Jesus when a paralytic man was lowered from a roof and he was placed in front of Jesus to be what? To be healed. Jesus was healing. The house was packed. So they found a creative way to bring the man low so that he would be healed. Many of you are familiar with the story. Now the Lord, seeing their faith, he spoke of it because they truly believed that Jesus could heal the paralysis. But in verse 20... And here we're beginning to make connections, brothers and sisters. In verse 20, Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you. Interesting statement, considering the immediate and obvious need of the paralytic. Do you get what I'm saying? It is almost as if the man could have said, Lord, I appreciate the forgiveness of sin. But could you do me a solid and take care of my paralysis too? It would be nice to be able to move my body as well. How about a quick miracle, Lord? Now, we're not told what the man's reaction was when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. But I do wonder about the weightiness of these words upon his mind. Think about it for a moment. What if that man who had a severe paralysis was angry at God? What if? What if this man was plagued with unbelief and hatred for his lot in life? What if, just what if, the words, your sins are forgiven you, brought the greatest consolation of his entire life? What if that is literally all he wanted to hear? 
What if that was the central concern of his life? What if those five words were the most comforting balm for his soul and the sweetest melody he had ever heard? What if that man thought to himself, if only I knew what God thought of me? If only I knew if there was a way for me to have peace with God with whom I have fought and to whom I have complained for the vast majority of my life. If that was the case, in the words, your sins are forgiven, you would have been enough for him. Whether the man knew it or not, or to what extent he did, by saying those words, Jesus addressed the greatest need of the paralytic man. But those in the audience watching and listening had a problem with this. You remember what happened. When they heard the words from Jesus, they quickly said, blasphemy. Why? Why did they say blasphemy? Because only God can forgive sins. By the way, is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely correct. They were 100% correct. Forgiveness of sins can only come from and be granted by God. After all, all sin is against God. He is the standard of holiness. He's the standard of righteousness. There is no other. Then who does Jesus think he is? That's the question. How can Jesus, a man, extend forgiveness of sin? Only God can do that. In other words, this was a show me your credentials moment. If you want to forgive sins, then upon what authority do you do this? And here comes the central question we, when dealing with issues of miracles, and it effectively solves the tension. Consider verse 23. Here's the question. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? That, my friends, is the central question regarding miracles because that question explains the reasons for miracles. In fact, question, the question of verse 33, 23, I'm sorry, makes a direct connection between the visible and the what? The invisible. That's the point. A connection between the visible and the invisible. Did you see it? Forgiveness of sin is not visible. It's not visible. Anyone can say that. Not so miracles. If you say rise and walk to a man who has never been able to do that, then you better have the power to make it happen. So which is easier to say? It is easier to say your sins are forgiven you, but to say rise and walk is a different issue altogether. Now, with that central question in mind, we're ready to consider the main point. The main point. And we're going we're gonna to come out of Luke chapter 5 as well, so don't lose your, your, your spot there. I want you to think with me for a moment. There is a parallel between the accounts of Aeneas and Dorcas and most other healing accounts in the, in the Bible, a parallel that might be somewhat elusive to us, and this is what brings up the main point of the passage. Think about it. What is the parallel among all the healing accounts? Aeneas was healed. Dorcas was resuscitated. The paralytic man was restored but all of them eventually died. All of them eventually died. Their miracles were real. Their miracles were undeniable for those who were around, and yet none of those miracles were meant to be permanent. Obviously, their quality of life was incredibly improved. 
Imagine being bedridden for eight years and suddenly you can walk, amazing, but this only lasted for a moment. All of them eventually died. They became dust. What was the point then if their bodies would eventually decay and ultimately die? Now, here's where the dots begin to connect. Miracles, which were always manifested externally and visibly. Remember that definition. Miracles, which were always external and visible, as the definition says, were given to authenticate the gospel message concerning an invisible and internal reality, namely reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with God. Let me explain again, and I've already mentioned something of this. You cannot see reconciliation with God. You cannot see forgiveness of sins with your eyes. But you can show the authority of the one granting forgiveness of sins through visible miracles. And that's what Jesus has. What did he say when he ascended? All what? Authority. What does Jesus have? Authority. Authority to forgive sins. So what was the point of the miracles? Well, Luke, in his gospel, gives us the answer. Consider Luke 5, verse 24. Here's the answer. Here's when everything comes together. But that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Authority on earth to forgive sins. Listen, authority to forgive. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up. So where's the main point of the miracles? Why miracles? Here's the point. To demonstrate the central truth of the gospel message. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. That's the point of the, the miracles. The Apostle Paul proves this even further and beautifully in the words recorded for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, in which the Apostle Paul said, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So the question is, how do you prove that Jesus has authority to bring about reconciliation with God, which is an invisible reality? You do it through visible manifestations of power, also known as miracles. So that you may know that the Son of God, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins and reconcile sinners to God in visible reality. Here's the miracle. Here's the visible reality. Thus, by healing Aeneas of his paralysis and by resuscitating Dorcas from death, Peter is in essence saying reconciliation with God is here. It is true. And it is found in Christ. And in Christ alone, the one who died and rose again. 
But since you cannot see reconciliation, this invisible reality, here's the proof, here's the sign, here's the miracle. Reconciliation has come in the person of Jesus. And just like Peter presented Dorcas alive and well to the saints and widows, so too Jesus will one day present his bride, the church, in full splendor and majesty before his presence without stain or wrinkle or any such thing. One day, brothers and sisters, think about this, one day, this invisible reconciliation will be made visible and our eyes will see the true glory of what Jesus has accomplished for us upon the cross and the empty tomb. Miracles were just a tiny, a tiny demonstration of a great, great reality. Sinners can now return to God without the fear of judgment for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. That's the point. And that's also, brothers and sisters, the reason why John Owen did not pray his illness away but died in hope. Because true faith is in that which is unseen. He did not rest in a miracle, but in the promises he read in God's word. Which brings us to point number six, the urgent call. The urgent call. Believe the word. Believe the word. That is the urgent call. Believe the word. I see the need to clarify this because some of you might be tempted to ask, well, is the preacher going to give us a miracle so that we might believe? Isn't that the point after all? If that's you, then I hate to disappoint you, but I won't give you a miracle. Should your heart stop beating right now, we will be dialing 911. <laughs> we will pray for you, but we will be dialing 911. Could God give you a miracle? Of course he can. Of course he could. Hence the name God. But there is a reason why you don't see miracles in the strict sense as in biblical times. The reason is this. The call now is not to believe in miracles but to believe in a written word, a final word, which they did not have when this was taking place. The canon has been completed. The word of God is here, and the call is now, do you believe this? Not the miracle. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 15, that the word, the scriptures, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Not a miracle. But the scripture, the word of God is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The call of this passage is not come get your miracle. The call is rather believe, believe the written word that you heard. Consider this, the history of the church has not been riding upon the shoulders of the miraculous, but upon authority, the authority of God's word. Take, for instance, the Reformation itself. What was the issue in the Reformation? Were they fighting the battle against the Roman Catholic Church by signs and wonders and miracles? Not at all. What was the point of the Reformation? What did the Reformers do? Certainly, they did not seek to perform miracles in order to prove their point. They made the entire thing about authority. And the central question was, who has authority? The Catholic Church. 
or the word of God. You see, it wasn't about miracles. It wasn't about healings. Why? Because the miracle workers, which only lived during the apostolic age, had a time-bound function to authenticate the message that was being preached. But these things, remember, these things have been written. For what purpose? So that you might believe. So that you might know. Now, with all that, let me bring this to a close in point number seven by, make a, by making a contextual connection, contextual connection. I want us to kind of prepare the way for what's happening in Acts chapter 10. So we saw the work of healing of Aeneas and the resuscitation of Dorcas, but here's the contextual connection. Greater works than these. Are coming. Greater works than these. Remember, we're making a connection with Acts chapter 10. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14, verse 12. Oh, it's, it's actually not as late as I thought it was. We have time. Nervous laughter every time. <laughs> I hope he's joking, but we'll, we'll laugh a little bit. <laughs> turn to John. 14, verse 12. Consider with me these shocking words. With this, we will finish our time together. And if by the end you feel like I left you hanging a bit, that's because it is true. I will leave you hanging until next Sunday. John 14, 12. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. What, a, what an interesting statement. Greater works than Jesus? He raised people from the dead. Just like Peter did with Dor Dorcas. We are not apostles. How can we ever do greater works? Well, he does answer that question in the last part of the verse. Greater works than these will he do because, because I am going to the Father. Because I am going to the Father. Because Jesus returned to the Father, we can do greater works. Greater than healing a paralyzed body and greater even than raising someone from the dead. Cornelius will help us understand what that means as we enter Acts chapter 10. So I hope you won't miss that. For now, I just ask, do you believe the word you have heard? Do you, my friend, believe that Jesus Christ has authority on earth to forgive sins and to reconcile you to God? That is the question. I'm not asking you right now if you believe that miracles can or cannot happen. The question that you must wrestle with is, do you believe that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive and reconcile you to God? I'm here to tell you that he does. He most certainly does. He died and rose again to bring us back to God. Believe in him today. 
Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the glory of your work, the glory of the Lord Jesus, and the ongoing work that he is doing in us and through us by the Spirit. So I pray, Lord, that as we finish our time together, we will consider the central point of what we heard, that miracles were not an end in themselves, but that they were performed in order to prove a greater, more glorious reality, namely, that in Christ we can have forgiveness of sins, and that in Christ you, Lord, were reconciling us to yourself. And so I pray that that will be the message we will take with us, that in Christ we no longer have the fear of judgment, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.